For I hope that you and I, through these next six months, will in our minds and in our hearts walk where Jesus walked, not only to make ourselves more conversant with the facts surrounding his ministry, as important as that is, but that in this process, his heart will rub off on our hearts and his spirit will touch our spirits so that you and I will walk more like sons of God, that you and I will live more like the joint heirs with Jesus Christ, which we are. Jesus born, flight to Nazareth, from, excuse me, to Egypt, to escape the slaughter perpetrated by Herod. About two years probably in Egypt. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, and his mother back desirous to stay, desiring to stay in Judea or Bethlehem, but fearing the antics of Herod's son, now on the throne, went on to Nazareth. We hear no more for 12 years. Then that brief little shaft of light from the twelfth year of Jesus' life when the family went to Jerusalem to celebrate the religious feast. The family left thinking Jesus was in the company of their kinsmen. Large crowd of people in Jerusalem at this Passover estimated on the basis of the sacrificial lambs made each year at the temple probably in excess of two million pilgrims in Jerusalem for the observance of the Passover. So you could see how the parents of Jesus would have thought that he was in their company of family and friends from Nazareth. They missed him, returned, found him in the temple, asking questions of the learned religious leaders of the day. And the question from Jesus' mother... You troubled us. Jesus quietly, positively reminded his mother that he needed to be about his father's business and in his father's house. Back to Nazareth, 18 years, not a word. 18 years. And then suddenly, a man bursts on the scene of history that you and I would characterize as a character. An eccentric. An eccentric. What does the word eccentric mean? It means somebody who operates out of a different center. Eccentric. Another center out of the usual pattern, outside the usual procedure. 
Here this man, born himself in the most remarkable way, God announced his birth to his father Zechariah in the temple, his father a priest, his mother in the lineage of the priesthood of Aaron, both in old age. The angel of God comes and says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah said, how can we have children in our old age? The angel said, it's going to be of God and you will name the boy John. Not Zechariah, not your name, but John. The boy was born went into the desert, lived in the desert. We do not know all that that implies. It may have meant that he lived in the company of the Essenes down in one of the uh, aesthetic communes that surrounded the Dead Sea from which have come the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know nothing about his life other than the fact that he was raised in the desert. And then suddenly, abruptly, dramatically, this man whose diet was locusts and wild honey, who wore funny clothes with a big leather belt around him, The desert had etched itself upon his countenance. Strong man, moral man, exciting man, prophetic man. And he starts preaching. And everybody starts going out to listen to him. Four hundred years since Malachi preached. Not a prophet in Israel for four hundred years. And John the Baptist, the announced forerunner of Jesus Christ, the prophetic forerunner of Jesus Christ, begins to preach. And everybody starts going out to hear him. Preaching out in the wilderness of Judea. Now my friends, when the Bible says wilderness, it means wilderness. The wilderness of Judea makes, makes Odessa, Texas look like the Garden of Eden. There's more grass growing on this marble than is growing in the wilderness of Judea. Some of you have been there. I have been there. John down there along the banks of the Jordan River preaching, repent, 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 repent. And where was he preaching? In the wilderness of Judea on the banks of the Jordan and the place where he was preaching is highly significant because it was the spot where the children of Israel had entered the promised land thousands of years before. Right there. Coming from the wilderness of Sinai, fulfilling the promise of God, crossing the Jordan River into the land flowing with milk and honey, stands now God's prophet, 
God's preacher who'd lived in the desert as the children of Israel had lived in the desert, saying, do you want to enter the land flowing with milk and honey? You want to enter the kingdom of God? You want your life to be different? You want your relationships to be different? You want to know the purposes of God? Then repent. The place where he preached, the manner in which he preached, highly symbolic and significant. Baptism. John didn't invent baptism. Many people were baptized in John's day. To become a Jew, if you were not a Jew, you were baptized. No Jew had been baptized. But if you were a Gentile, like most of us here today, if you had wanted to become a Jew... In John's day, you would have had to have had your hair cut, your nails clipped, circumcised, and baptized, totally immersed. In fact, that's what the word baptizo means. It means to immerse. Now, you do not have to be baptized to be a Christian. I don't know why we Baptists get credit for a lot of things we don't believe. But no Baptist I've ever known or heard or read said you had to be baptized to be a Christian. You do not have to be baptized to be a Christian. More water does not make you a better Christian. But my friend, total immersion is what is meant by the word baptizo. Re recognizing that it is symbolic, not arguing that fact at all and maybe physical disability or some other reason would make you feel satisfied with less than immersion. That's all right. I'm not arguing that. I just want you to get your terms straight, and the term baptizo means totally immersed in water. In fact, there was no such word as baptized until they translated the King James Bible. And the translators of the King James Bible were not practicing total immersion. And so instead of translating the Greek word baptizo as immerse, which is what it means, they transliterated it. In other words, they made a word. They made the word baptize. There was no such word in English. So they took the word, Greek word baptizo, changed one letter, and made a new English word called baptize. But the word baptizo means totally immerse. And that's what John the Baptist was doing down there on the banks of the Jordan River. That's what you had to do to become a Jew. You were totally immersed in water. It was symbolic of your sins being washed away, your old life being washed away, your old life dying in the water was symbolic of the grave. And next Sunday morning we will be preaching on the baptism of Jesus. When John baptized Jesus, he totally immersed him in water. All of the followers of John the Baptist baptized, totally immersed in water. Now, you don't have to be totally immersed in water to be a Christian. Will you write that down? When you repeat the, the subject of this message this morning, tomorrow to your friends over coffee, you don't have to be baptized to be a Christian. But John was totally immersing people in water as a symbol of a new life beginning. But the significant thing about John's baptism 
was that he was baptizing Jews. And he was baptizing the religious leaders of the land. Look at the crowd that came out to hear John the Baptist. The religious leaders came. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, tax collectors, soldiers, irreligious men and women, a most heterogeneous group to say the least. All kinds of people. Religious and reprobate. Faithful and unfaithful. Acceptable and unacceptable. Good and bad by all standards. They were all there. Look at that crowd. The religious leaders of the land. Listen to this. The religious leaders of the land. The people who knew the law. The people who observed all of the ceremonial sacrifices of Judaism. They were there. Why were they there? Why were the religious leaders out there listening to John the Baptist and being baptized by him? Why were they there? I thought they had all the answers. I thought religious symbolism, religious ritualism, religious ceremonialism, all of the legalism that had been expressed in Judaism, surely that would satisfy them. Why were they there? They were there for the same reason you and I came to the Lord. Whatever our background might have been, we might have grown up very religious. We might have grown up obeying all of the rules and the precepts and the customs of the society of which we were a part. But my friend, ritual will not fill that blank down in your heart. Ceremonialism will not answer the deep needs of the human spirit. However religious you and I might have been, however religious they were, there was something deep inside of them that said there's more to this than what I've seen. There's more to this than what I've heard. There's more to this than what I've tasted. There's a yearning and a hunger and a loneliness down inside of my heart. John the Baptist may have the answer, so they went out to hear him. Is that what you're looking for, my seeking friend? You've tried religion and ceremonialism and rules and regulations. You've tried New Year's resolutions. You've tried to live a good life. You've tried to be an exemplary individual. Oh, I compliment you on all of those desires. I compliment you on the hunger in your heart to be the right kind of person. But my friend, are you here today realizing that with all of the observance of ritualism and religion, there is still a vacancy and a void in the human heart that can be filled only by the Spirit of God. That's why the religious people were there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they were there because religion will not satisfy the hunger of your spirit. It didn't theirs, it will not yours, and it will not mine. Baptized in every man's baptistry, join any man's church, obey all the rules and regulations, and still there's an emptiness in the heart if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, resides not there. So look at that crowd. And look at that man. He said, repent and be baptized. And here were the religious leaders of his day going down into the Jordan River. 
there at about the spot where the children of Israel had entered the promised land thousands of years before. And there they were buried in the waters of baptism by John the baptizer. What a man. What a crowd. And what a message. He said, first of all, repent. Now when we get to the preaching of Jesus in a few Sundays, that's the first word you're going to hear from his lips. Repent. What does that mean? Does that mean to feel bad because of your sin? That may be part of it. Godly sorrow may work repentance, as the Scripture says. But repentance doesn't mean just feeling bad because of your sin. Being upset because of it. Crying because of it. Repent means change. It means about face. It means you've been going in one direction and it wasn't satisfying and it wasn't meaningful. So change. This past week I was interviewed by two reporters from local newspaper. They sat down and they said, Dr. Fanning, what is a Baptist? They said, we are doing a series on, or a special article on Baptists. Jimmy Carter, now elected president, everybody's gotten interested in Baptists. What a Baptist like. He's done more to attract attention to Baptists than any man in the history of America, and I think that's good. What I am concerned about are the people they send out to find out what Baptists are like. <laughs> and I want you to know I have no little concern in my heart as to how it's going to sound once it gets down on paper after passing through two people who know as little about Baptist as I know about atomic science. I said, well, you know, you almost have to ask every Baptist to find out what a Baptist believes. We don't have a hierarchy. We don't have a pope. We don't have bishops. I cannot speak for Trinity Baptist Church and say, oh, Baptist... So-and-so, I said there is one statement you can make about what I believe all Baptists believe, and that is they believe that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God and that salvation is through faith in Him alone. Now, beyond that, we're going to have differences of opinion on just about everything. <laughs> and I said, you don't realize it, but that's our strength. That's our strength. That's the vitality of Baptists. That's also the cause of a great deal of misunderstanding about Baptists, but that's also the vitality of Baptists. There are a lot of people in America who claim to know something about democracy who are surprised at the democracy within a Baptist church. It's the only democracy left in this land. Well, they didn't understand that. This one reporter looked at me and said, 
Now, when I tell you what I was asked, you'll understand why I'm concerned about how this article is going to turn out. Reporter looked at me and said, Jimmy Carter has talked about being born again. Has anything like that mystical sort of born again thing ever happened to you that Jimmy Carter's talking about? That was the question. I said, Jimmy Carter was not the first man to use that phrase. He did not originate the term born again. I said, certainly I've had an experience like that. Reporter said, have other Christians? I said, there are no other kinds of Christians. You hear the phrase occasionally, which is a redundancy, born again Christians. There are no other kind of Christians. To be Christian means you have been born again. It may or may not have been emotional. It may or may not have been volcanic and exciting and externally newsworthy, but any man who has ever tasted of the heavenly gift, has repented of his sins, has been born again, or he's not in the kingdom of God. Your experience is not like mine. It's not supposed to be. But any man who has ever come to know the Lord has come to know the Lord because he's decided the way he was going was not working, was not good, was not satisfying, and he turned around. That's what it means. Repent. Change your ways. Change your direction. Sam Jones, the old Methodist evangelist, used to state it, quit your meanness. Quit your meanness. Change. That's what John the Baptist said. And they said, well, how will we do it? He said, okay, go back to town. You folks have got a lot of money. Help people who don't. And you tax collectors, be honest. And you military men, be honorable. Any religion that doesn't reach beyond the moment of profession is not worth the time it takes to make the profession. Go back there where you live, said John the Baptist. You've been acting like a bunch of snakes and that's why you're out here anyway. You're scared to death. The fire's coming and you vipers are running from the fire. I tell you, change your ways. Go back to town start living a different kind of life. Quit your meanness. Repent. Confess your sins. I want to say a word about confession. There is sort of a phenomena within the last few years that concerns me and that is the tendency some people have to get into little groups, church groups or retreats or seminars, colloquies, whatever you want to call them, and they start confessing all of their sins. This is both unscriptural and unhealthy. 
the area of confession must be only the area of involvement. The area of confession must be only the area of involvement. A number of years ago, I was in a revival meeting in a church where a pastor talked to me about a tragic experience that occurred in the life of that church. On a Sunday morning, a woman came forward and made a decision, said she wanted to say a few words, and the pastor unwisely, as he expressed to me, let her say those few words. She got up and in front of the entire congregation confessed to having a sexual relationship with a man in that congregation. No one else in that congregation knew about it. Their children did not know about it. Families did not know about it. It did not solve a thing. It only created more problems. Unbiblical, unhealthy. The area of confession must be the area of involvement. Confession must be made to people who are competent to help you with the problem. Confession must be made to people who are confidential. Why do people do this? They do this because they're trying to transfer their own guilt to everybody else. That is not the way to handle the problem. That is not the way to solve the problem. The area of confession, the area of involvement. Talk to your pastor. Talk to a marriage counselor. Talk to someone who is trained to help an individual deal with a problem, whatever it is, but indiscriminate, promiscuous confession is detrimental to the welfare of the confessor and detrimental to the welfare of other individuals. If I've been talking about you, say I have spread some malicious gossip about you, or I've told something that I thought was true, Or somebody that I believed in said, so-and-so happened, and I repeat it. And then I find out later that I was wrong, that I had damaged your reputation. I had hurt you because of what I had said to other people. What am I to do? I am first to go to the people that I talk to about you. And I am to say I was wrong in what I said. I should not have repeated that. I hurt that individual. And I want you to know that I am confessing to you that I was wrong, that I said something that was not true, and I have unnecessarily, I have heedlessly hurt someone else, and I want you to correct what I said if you repeated it to anybody else. And then I'm to go to you after I have gone to these people and say, I want you to know that I've repeated some things that were not true and if you hear it, I have corrected it. I have apologized to the people I said it about, said these things to, to them about you and I want you to know that I have corrected it and I ask you to forgive me. 
Going to the individual is a cheap shortcut. That doesn't solve the problem. That just gets it off your conscience. Here's a whole group of people out here still erroneously and wrongly impressed. It is not enough that I go to you and say, I'm sorry that I said these untrue things about you to all of these people. Go to them. Make restitution where the guilt has been perpetrated. Go to them. The cheap shortcut is to go to the individual and say, I was wrong about you. Please forgive me. And that way try to get it off of your own conscience. won't work that way. It's not what the Scripture says. And if I hear that something is wrong between the two of us, that you have done something, I, the person who feels offended, it is up to me, according to the Scripture, to take the initiative and go to you and say, listen, I have heard so-and-so. Let's straighten it out. We're brothers in the Lord. Let's solve this problem. Careful, my friend, about confession because honesty, hear me, honesty does not turn vice into a virtue. Honesty does not turn vice into a virtue. That's another one of the shortcomings of some of these discussion groups sometimes. A person says, well... It's true, I'm a gossip. I just go around talking about everybody and murdering their character and demeaning their good name. But that's the way I am. Wonderful Christian, I've told you what a horrible person I am. I just like to lie. Just the way I am, I'm a liar. Wouldn't he a wonderful Christian? He stood up there and told us he was a liar. Maybe he's lying about that. How do you know? Change, John the Baptist said. You're in stealing, Paul said. Don't steal anymore. You've been lying, don't lie anymore. You've been cheating, don't cheat anymore. You've been criticizing? Don't criticize anymore. Repent. Honesty does not turn your vices into virtues. There's still vices, however much I may talk about them, and try to expiate my own guilt by pouring it on everybody else. Change your ways, said John. Repent. Confess. And some people say, well, that's all old John was, just a negative hellfire and damnation preacher. Well, I tell you, my friend, there is hellfire and there is damnation. There is. And you don't have to die to experience it. It can burn you up and eat you up while you live. John said, stop what you're doing, confess your sin, but that's not all his message. Hear me, my friend. Abstinence makes Lifeless followers. Legalism 
Negativism produces an anemic religion. You can pull weeds all day long and you don't get a garden. You can repent all day long, you don't get a garden. You can confess, oh, I pull the weeds and I want the garden. You don't get it till you plant something new. Lily of the valley, there he is. Rose of Sharon, there he is. Fairest of 10,000, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away. Water won't do it. Religion won't do it. Confession won't do it. Behold the man, the lamb. He takes away the sin of the world. Plant him in your heart and life. Pull the weeds. Plant the Christ. You'll live forever. And like the fruit trees planted by the river of life in the city of God, you'll bring forth fruit 12 months out of the year. Righteousness will not be seasonal. Religion will not be ritualism. It'll be a part of your life because Christ is a part of your life. Behold Him. Repent. Certainly we must make room for him, recognizing our need of him. Confess our sin to him. Open our hearts to him. And there he is, said John the Baptist. Look at him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now follow him. I'm nothing. I'm decreasing. He's, he's increasing. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Look at him. Religion won't do it. Ritualism won't do it. Repentance won't do it. Confession won't do it. The temple sacrifices won't do it. Being a son of Abraham won't do it. Christ does it. Him alone. Trust him and following. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Behold the Lamb. Would you follow Him? You are already a follower, then be a part of His church, His disciple group, His band of learners, His body of the committed, You've never trusted him, my friend. Behold him. Fairest of 10,000. Follow him. He'll make the desert of your life bloom like a rose.
Let's stand to our feet and bow our heads. Now, dear Lord, in this moment of invitation, may those of us who feel convicted of our sins repent. And if we need to make restitution with individuals whom we have hurt or unconsciously injured or offended, may we make it right with them. It may be somebody that lives in the same house with us. works in the same office, goes to the same church. Oh God, help us to be bridge builders of reconciliation. And help us to do this. Not so we can endeavor to pat ourselves on the back morally, but so we can open our hearts to your presence spiritually. And O Lamb of God, walk into our lives in a new and fresh way today as you walked into the lives of those beside the Jordan 2,000 years ago. Your invitation, we give it to you. Use it, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, behold him. O Lamb of God, I what? I come.